0: This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Diane Morfield, CFO
1: of Cyrus One, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast.
0: This is episode five hundred and two.
1: So my initial focus was I was hired to help refine and enhance the technical accounting at the company, uh, also to establish some finance function, like a a comprehensive forecast and comprehensive board reporting, uh, investment relations, those kinds of things, as well as shoring up the internal controls. And so when I got here, it seemed like a great opportunity to help myself in terms of my public company experience, but also help the company because my background lent itself really well to the needs that I'm
0: Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Ankanova Therapeutics CFO, Mark Guerin. 24 months ago, CFO Mark Guerin had a pretty clear notion of what he wanted Ankanova's financial footing to look like the second half of 2019. However, the question that lingered was whether the plan Guerin and his team were putting in motion had the vigor to overcome the obstacles along the way. Beginning with a strongly worded message from NASDAQ claiming that Ankanova's stockholder equity was no longer sufficient to meet its listing standards. CFO Mark Garin explains how Ankanova overcame that obstacle and a number of others after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega PlanFold.com.
2: Hello, we're speaking with Mark Garin, CFO of Oncinova Therapeutics, a clinical-stage biopharmaceutical company. It went public back in 2013, and it was founded uh, back in 1998. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much. Mark, it's great to have you with us. As always, we like to ask our CFO guests to begin by looking back for us and sharing with us what they feel were the experiences that prepared them for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you?
1: That's an excellent question. So the uh, I would say probably the most critical piece was starting my career in what was at the time one of the big six accounting firms, Coopers and & Lybrand, and then specifically Um, working in the middle market group of that company. Um, That was foundational for setting my trajectory for the rest of my career. Um, It's getting the best training possible in public accounting and seeing a number of different companies and industries and working with a bunch of uh, extremely professional people. I would say uh, from there, a, a couple of jobs after that, I worked at McNeil Consumer Products, which is a Johnson & Johnson company. Uh, that was a, an extremely valuable experience to see from the inside how a big, world-class company operates. And it complemented the learning that I got in technical accounting at Coopers & Library with some more uh, what I would call operational aspects and uh, operational finance things. And those two things together I think equipped me well for the the other critical point, which was when I got involved in biotechnology. That was back in 2003, and uh, the, the background that I had built at Coopers and Library and the McNeil Consumer Products helped me to become uh, immediately uh, successful in biotech, first as a financial reporting person, uh, then as a controller, uh, then as eventually as a CFO.
2: So tell us, when, uh, when was it that you knew finance leadership was the path you wanted to take. Was it was it back in your Coopers and Libran days, or was it shortly after that?
1: I would say it was probably in the Coopers and Libran days, because to start in public accounting at a big six firm like that, there are a lot of directions uh, to which you can go. And early on, it became clear to me that I wanted to be in the finance slash accounting leadership direction. And I think that's the reason I mentioned that I've been in the middle market group at Cooper's and that being helpful because when you're working with smaller companies, you get to spend a lot of time with the CFOs and CEOs of those companies. And that's the point at which I realized I didn't want to be in a much larger company. I would much rather be in a a middle market or a small company and be closer to the top and leading the finance function.
2: We'll come back and revisit uh, some of your early days during the mentoring round towards the end of the interview, but uh, right now, let's find out a little bit about Uncanova Therapeutics. Tell us about uh, what was the opportunity that attracted you here.
1: So, I, I joined here shortly after the IPO. I joined in September of 2013, and the thing that was appealing about the role to me initially was that it was not for a CFO job, it was for a VP of finance job in a public company where I knew I would be getting current SEC accounting and reporting experience. And prior to joining here, the last time I had that experience was back in 2005. So my uh, SEC experience was getting uh, stale, and I decided this was a great opportunity for me to get in and uh, uh, re-familiarize myself with those regulations and also with regulations that had changed since 2005, and uh, the reason this was so appealing is because I was coming into a company where I was not going to be the CFO right away, but there was a path that if the company did well and if I did well, for me to become the CFO. So my initial focus was I was hired to help refine and enhance the technical accounting skill at the company, uh, also to establish some finance function, like a a comprehensive forecast and comprehensive board reporting, uh, investor relations, those kinds of things, as well as shoring up the internal controls. And so when I got here, it seemed like a great opportunity to help myself in terms of my public company experience, but also help the company because my background lent itself really well to the needs that Anconova had at that time.
2: As you move into that role for the first time, you're aware of the operations, the accounting uh, processes. What is it that you want to, what's the next step when you arrive in the CFO office? How are you likely to change the finance function? Is there something you want to, you know, has it matured that you wanted to fix or change? Or were there certain hires you wanted to make? How are you going to put your thumbprint? As a CFO on this company, and
1: so i I actually started doing that before taking the role of taking on the role of CFO so initially, I had a team, our finance team was i believe seven or eight people, and when I became responsible for many of them, even before becoming a CFO, I started to recognize that certain people were capable of doing different things, in some cases more things or higher level things than they had been doing. And so there wasn't a, I wouldn't call it a reorganization, but there was a a realignment basically of, of people and processes and responsibilities that I think made our team more efficient and more effective. And then as is the case in a lot of biotech companies, we have gone through a number of reductions in force across the company. And so the people who were on my team, little by little, became fewer and fewer. And so the uh, reorganization or the realignment that we had done was, ended up being critical because then we were able to get all the things done which we had to get done with basically half the resources. So my, my thumbprint, I guess I would say, is that uh, I have a great team of people and everybody has risen to the challenge to do the, the highest level work of which they're capable, and that that causes everybody to be hopefully fulfilled and challenged by the work, but also it allows me to focus on things besides all of those things, which the rest of my team is focusing on. So I can be uh, interacting with investors uh, or doing IRPR work or financing those kinds of things.
2: Can I ask you, what you described, and I don't think this is uncommon uh, in corporate America either, is that you were sort of asked to be a leader before you had the title. You uh, didn't necessarily have the CFO uh, stripe on your sleeve, and yet you were doing, uh, you were required to be that leader. Am I stating that in a way that you can relate to?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's, it's very insightful that you make that point, uh, I think it is 100% true. It's hard to
2: do that is what I, I'm trying to I, – and I think it's a situation many finance leaders find themselves in. It's sort of like a um, you know, trial by fire. You, you're, you, you are leading, but yet you don't have the title, and that in some ways undermines or makes it more difficult to lead. It actually – well, it kind of demonstrates your leadership – Sort of uh, in a bare way. Yeah, I uh, would. Have You're right, Jack. Yeah, I completely completely agree with that. It's almost as though you need to prove you can do the job before you get the job. Yeah. So uh, let's find out about uh, this company and what is what is this offering? I know it's a cancer offering, but but uh, help us understand how this company is distinguishing itself from some of the other offerings. Yeah, out there. I'd be I'd be happy to. So we're
1: studying uh, our lead compound, which is named Rigocertib in a disease called myelodysplastic syndromes, which is abbreviated MDS. And most people don't know what MDS is. It used to be called preleukemia. So MDS is a condition where your bone marrow does not produce enough uh, circulating blood. Your bone marrow makes your red cells, your white cells, and your platelets. And when you have MDS, your bone marrow does not produce enough. So these patients present with low blood counts or uh, anemia, or they're immunosuppressed because they don't have enough white cells. And in about a third of the cases, MDS transforms into acute myeloid leukemia. So our our study, which is going up currently, is named INSPIRE, and we're studying our drug in patients with high-risk MDS, and it's after these patients have failed all available treatments. There's one drug which is approved for these patients, and most of the patients don't respond, and eventually everybody fails to respond. So for those patients, there's no approved treatment. That's the group that we're studying with our LEAD program. Uh, The study started in December of 2015, and we expect that we will be fully enrolled with 360 patients by the end of 2019. And very close to that point, we'll have what's called top-line and it will tell us whether our drug works better than uh, not using our drug. So the the patients are uh, – it, it's a, called a survival study. So you just look at patients who were treated with our drug, how long they lived, compared to patients who were not treated with our drug and how long they lived. And there hasn't been an approval in this space in 15 years, so we're very excited about – coming to the end of this study and hopefully having positive top-line data to be able to help these patients who currently have nothing available to them.
2: Now, in the time you've been there as a a finance leader, has the world... Have you begun to look at the world a little differently in terms of what metrics you use to educate your investors, uh, the workforce there? Um, I'm just curious. uh, From time to time, you discover something that that uh, you think might illuminate the opportunity better is there anything like that happening or happened along the way? yeah, yeah I think so. Uh, now that we're within a year of top
1: line data there's there are very few of those kinds of things really it's It's binary at this point it's we're going to get to the end of the study and either it's going to work or not uh, but Leading into getting up to this point, there were some of those things. And in particular, uh, in January of 2018, the study that I was describing had a a pre-planned interim analysis in which uh, an independent data monitoring group and statisticians were able to look at how the study was going. And they could give us a a couple different alternatives. They could say, stop the study because it's not working. Or they could say, keep going exactly as you are. Or they could say, There's a promising signal here, keep going, but increase the patient count. And that's about as as effective a motivator as you can get. So we got through that interim analysis, and this independent committee told us to continue studying all the patients we were studying, but because they saw a promising signal to increase the patient count. So that actually causes everybody to get, uh, you know, more excited about it. Because the, in the alternative, they could have said, this isn't working, stop the study. Uh, so that was a, a critical point for us in January of 2018. And uh, the next critical point for us is going to be when we're able to evaluate top-line data after we get all of our patients enrolled.
2: Curious, we always like to uh, – larger companies ordinarily will talk to finance leaders a little bit about how their team members are collaborating with different parts of the organization, and we know that uh, in this area, clearly uh, the communication with uh, research and the clinical trials, I, it's all uh, really important to have those connections and have your team members understanding um, what other challenges might be out there or what's been overcome. Um, can, can you share with us about collaboration, uh, maybe reflect a little bit on how finance collaborates inside the company. yeah that's that's a critical critically important for an effective
1: finance leader or organization i think to be joined at the hip with the operations side of the business you know you could be just an accountant who keeps score or makes projections that are just based on financial modeling or accounting standards but to be really effective, I think, as a finance team, you need to partner with your operations counterparts. And so uh, we, people on my team, interact regularly with their counterparts in operations. And for a company like ours, operations is mostly clinical. Uh, So our clinical operations leads and my accounting manager, my director of financial reporting, um, are in at least a daily communication about purchase orders, about contracts, about invoices, about progress, because you need to have that data from the operations side to be effective in financial reporting or doing projections. And it goes all the way up to the top of the organization. So while our team, my team, is interacting with the operations folks at the same time, I'm interacting very closely with our chief medical officer and our CEO to to docs, um, and I, incidentally, I sit between their two offices and we interact all the time because uh, that's that's what makes the whole organization run smoothly, I think. Uh, and we're small enough. We only have about 20 employees. We're small enough that uh, everybody should know what's going on with everybody else and people from different disciplines can help one another. Our job is made easier by having the clinical operations leads Understand what we need to do to estimate accruals or to make projections, and they they are more effective in their jobs when we're able to tell them here's how much you've spent, here's where you're overspending, here's an idea where you can bring in a different vendor and maybe get a better price. So it is it is all about collaboration, and importantly, it's collaboration across disciplines. I
2: want to ask you a question about uh, your day and. Uh, the fact that this is a public company, the briefings you you have to do with analysts, uh, how that communication is done. Um, I'm curious: is it a manageable amount of time that you you dedicate to that? Does it surprise you? Is it more time than you you would have expected? It is. It's, it waxes and wanes, I'd say. So
1: most of the time, uh, it's it is. An important part of the job, and it's not—it uh, has not been overly burdensome. But when you are doing the financing, any kind of offering, then it certainly is more time-consuming. And if you're in a period of time where you're doing a number of financings, uh, it, there's a cumulative effect. Um, so, for example, last year in the February to April time frame of 2018. We did two offerings, and so from basically January through the end of April, that was a critically important part of my job. Um, Since then, because we haven't done offerings, it's been less and less. It's more concentrated around if we have something to announce, like either a quarterly results call or if we announce some kind of a a partnership or a clinical milestone, there will be follow-up from all the analysts that cover us and other analysts that don't yet cover us whom we would like to start covering us. So sometimes they'll reach out to us. Sometimes we reach out to them. Um, but the, the tricky thing about interacting with analysts and bankers, I think, is, you know, there's a, there's an awful lot of information that somebody inside a biotech company knows. And you have to think about what have you said publicly because you you can't give out non-public information in a selected way. So your messaging has to be exactly consistent with what you've filed with the SEC and what your financial statements say, what your press releases say. Um, And I think that is – it makes the job a little bit more difficult because you always have to make sure that you are consistent and not – Giving more information, even though you have it and may want to give it, you can't release it in a you know, one-on-one conversation.
2: Very, very interesting. You just sort of underscored why we use the word. The characteristic of many finance leaders is that they've been described as guarded. And if at all times, you know, under these circumstances. They always have in the back of their mind how carefully they have to choose the words and what was publicly released and what wasn't. And uh, these things are not always top of mind, so you really have to always uh, sort of uh, keep yourself (laughs) sort of aware of your surroundings. Anyway, I think it underscores it very nicely. We always like to ask for a finance strategic moment, uh, which is just to have you during the course of your career. I'm sure you've had so many of these, but uh, really we're looking for uh, a time when you saw either a risk, an opportunity. You, you saw something with your lines of sight via the accounting or into the financing numbers, whatever it might have been, that led you to... Uh, redirect the company or maybe your team or, or just modify the behaviors of a group, perhaps, whatever it might have been. What comes to mind when I ask for a finance strategic model? Uh, it's
1: digital- Equity was not sufficient to meet their listing standards. And so we had to go through a process where we came up with a plan, presented it to NASDAQ. They had to evaluate whether they thought it made sense and we could achieve it. Uh, it turned out initially they didn't, and so we appealed it and then had to go present to the NASDAQ hearing panel what our plan was. Part of that plan was to do some offerings, because that's the way you grow your stockholders' equity is by selling stock. And so it, the process started in May, and then it was an arduous task from May all the way through the following May to do two offerings and raise a total of about $40 million to then have the cash we needed to get to the end of 2019, but also have the stockholders' equity that we needed to get to retain our NASDAQ listing. And the offerings were really difficult because of the fact that we had a relatively small market cap to raise that much money. So uh, we issued a whole bunch of new equity, and that was the the capstone event, that last offering in April, that got it all done. And we we actually had that plan from a year prior. We knew we were going to have to do offerings. We knew we couldn't do them right away. We knew it was going to take more than one. And uh, the plan that we presented to NASDAQ is actually what we accomplished and you, we couldn't we would never have been able to get that done if we had not started back in April, May of two thousand seventeen with a plan for how we were going to address all of these issues um, so beginning back then with what the end looked like helped us think about it strategically and then and get it done.
0: We enter the mentoring round with CFO Mark Guerin after this message. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com.
2: We're going to jump to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to uh, inform and inspire. What is it that's exciting you today about finance and business? For me, it's uh,
1: being able to work in a company where I think that we are working towards something that's going to benefit humanity. Um, which is the reason that I got into biotech, and it's the reason I stay in biotech, because um, we're doing something which which can change people's lives. And whatever role, however small, I can play
2: in that, um, I'm grateful
1: for and happy to do.
2: What is that piece of information you wish someone had given you when you stepped into a CFO Leadership role for the first time the first time you had okay the buck stopped with you and the finance function what what is it that you wish someone had told you <laughs> that's a great question jack
1: I think um, probably i would have i would have liked to learn earlier that I should uh, listen more and talk less
2: that's a good one I, I we've heard that before, and is this going back to um, it was someone at Cooper's and Library and told you it was – how early in your career are you thinking? I, th- I would say my first
1: CFO role, which was back in uh, 2008, and it was not a public company. It was a venture-backed company, and uh, that's a whole different kind of investor. It's a whole different kind of role, uh, but it it actually helped me out a lot keeping that in mind so that when I did become the CFO of a public company, hopefully I'd already learned that lesson you know, with the safety net of a private company in which
2: to do it. Is there a personal habit that you believe uh, that's part of your routine uh, that you believe has contributed to your success in some way?
1: I think probably uh, always trying to help whoever you're working with, whether somebody on your team or somebody in an operations role, trying to make sure that, people who you ask to do things, that they understand what you're asking them and how it fits into the bigger picture. I find that people are generally much more engaged in their task if they see how what they're doing fits into, uh, you know, the future of the company or the progress of a clinical trial or the completion of an audit or the filing of a 10K.
2: I noticed that, uh, and I'll uh, before our final question, I, I just want to ask you about. Uh, it's a geography question. <laughs> you, you're the balance of your career, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. That that sort of, uh, imagined imagine biotech corridor perhaps uh, was fruitful for you. Uh, never had a recruiter try to move you around the country? No, I have
1: had uh, discussions with people about roles in other other. Places, I don't think most of them would have been probably either in in the south, like in the North Carolina Research Triangle Park area, or uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And you know, I think uh, for the right role, I think I would consider doing that. Uh, But the ones that I was considering at the time weren't better than what I thought I could find here. And uh, so fortunate that I have lived in this area my whole life because it seems there are a lot of good biotech companies here.
2: Well, it's interesting. We, we do uh, realize that many finance leaders tend to build their careers in one geography, and they do not have to move around always. So uh, anyway, just another example of that, I believe. We're going to uh, jump to our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months?
1: So I think uh, the finance leader of a company that's about to have top-line data for a clinical study that's been going on for almost four years, uh, my top priority is to make sure that we have the cash we need to complete the study and get the top-line data, um, while at the same time not not diluting our shareholders by selling stock at a price which I believe and I think most of our shareholders believe is – undervalued so the only things you can do then you have two choices you can either reduce your cash burn or you can bring in money from non-dilutive sources like license agreements or collaborations so my objective is to make sure we have the money to get the trial done the the levers that I can control are sell stock cut cost or with my colleagues bring in deals Um, and I would, I would approach those in the exact reverse order. So getting deals is the first thing. Cutting costs, we're continually vigilant about that. And then, as a last resort, being able to raise money if and when we need to, when we have positive data, to be able to submit for approval and then hopefully commercialize the drug. Mark Garrett, thank you for joining us on CFO.com.